Well, if you brought your Bible today, you can turn to Philippians chapter 4. When I was first beginning ministry as a young man, people have asked, well, how do you decide what you're going to be speaking on? And uh, am I not on? I think I'm on. What's that? Okay, we're good. Sorry about that. But when I was young, I'd, people would ask, what are you preaching on next Sunday? And I'd, I'd always try to figure out what people need. You know, what Sunday's coming, what do people need? And so I'd try to search the scriptures for a message that people would need. I found that very challenging. Still off? Okay, we'll get this. Yeah, I'm good. I can, okay. Anyway, I think you kind of heard, I don't want to repeat it again. Thank you. <laughs> so I heard that message four times this morning. Uh, but, it, you know, you go through the stressful part, and, and typically I'd start off on Monday morning trying to work through the scriptures. And what I found when I'm going through something like Philippians, a couple things happen. Number one, it's what I need. I find this, that God knows exactly what I need that week, and he's working his word through my own life. And, and also... By the time Sunday rolls around, that is exactly what we need. And it's not like I just discerned, oh, yeah, put this together, this together. We need this passage of Scripture to resolve these things and help people through parts of life. And so I just had to smile when I saw that Philippians chapter 4 is where we ended up at the end of chapter 3, uh, three weeks ago. And we're into chapter 4 of Philippians. We're kind of down the home stretch of this book. And the subject is, I feel, right what I need and I think is right what our church needs. And the topic is unity. Um, you think, well, did God know all that, or is that just circumstantial? Is that just a coincidence? I think God knows exactly what we need. Uh, before time began, he knows what our church needs, and he knows all of the things that we go through. And Today is also a day that the church historically has celebrated. Does anybody know what this Sunday is? It's not, it's not Christmas. It's not uh, Easter. It's Pentecost. What happened at Pentecost? The Holy Spirit was given. And when the Holy Spirit came, the Holy Spirit took up residence in the lives of people to bring unity to the church, so the unifying spirit. And I think that it, it doesn't really matter if we have a week like we had this week or a week we'll have next week. Week is filled with frustrations and we feel like giving up. And so I think I feel like giving up. I, I feel like it's not just that it's a hard week. It's just like one week after another hard week after another hard week, we go through these things and challenges in our in our lives and we feel like, I don't know if I can continue to um, hold up under the stresses that I face in my life. And like I said earlier, that all of us have some similar ones and that we have all of the other parts of life. And then we come across a command like Philippians 4, verse 4, that really frustrates us because he says, Rejoice, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And I find this, that when, when I'm going through something really hard, the last thing I want to hear is, hey, you know what? Rejoice. Hey, you know what? Um, just thank God. And you know what? All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. I, I find that's my favorite verse to give to someone else. 
I really don't like when I'm, when I'm going through something for someone to tell me, you know what, just be strong. Just hang in there. You know what? God is still on the throne. Do you not believe God? Is He dead? And uh, so we go through that, and I, and I think that when the whole, the whole letter is filled with these impossible commands that, that really drive us to relationship with Jesus Christ, they're only possible with Him. Verse 13 of the same chapter says, I can do all of this through Christ. Who gives me the strength. And so I don't believe it's a coincidence that we're in this text. I, I believe this is a text I need. I think it's a text this church needs. I think it's a text probably on any given Sunday. It's what we need. And it drives us to the understanding, as I mentioned earlier, the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. When we say that, we mean all of his perfections, all of his attributes. God is self-existent. He is the creator of all things. He is almighty, all-powerful, all-wise. God is good and merciful and tender and kind. And God is working all of these things, difficult things, hard things, disappointing things, troubling things. He's working all of these things together for your good, for my good, and for his glory. Now, the theme, and I hope you can remember the, the one-word theme of the whole letter. Paul's writing to his friends. He's writing from prison to the city of Philippi about joy. Now, how does a guy who's in prison write to a per people who are being persecuted about joy? And we're going to see that the understanding and believing in the, in the sovereignty of God is, is the foundation, is the root of all joy because when I believe that God is good and he is kind and he is faithful and he knows and understands and is all-powerful and he is capable if I believe that I'm at peace but if there's something about God I'm not believing I'm gonna be anxious and I'm not gonna have joy and I could not believe God cares. I could not believe He can do anything about it. I cannot believe that God uh, really is, is caring about me as a person. And I would say this on all of those doctrines about God, I do personally at times struggle, and so do you. So this is why I titled the message this morning, the, the Disruption of Unity and the Struggle for Joy. The Disruption of Unity and the struggle for joy. And this is the text. I'll read these first three verses. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Well, there's a crisis in Philippi. Philippi was the place that the first missionary journey that he had really launched into Europe. The Apostle Paul, he had been persecuted, put in prison there. Uh, a church was founded. He, he was very, very close 
to these people. In fact, of all the letters that Paul writes, this is probably the most personal, the most endearing. These are the people that he really, really loves and cares for. They're also the church that has continued to pray for him and support him while he's gone, gone on through his journeys. But they've got an issue. They've got some friction inside the church, disunity and conflict, and, and that's what he points out. He's going through all this glorious doctrine and encouragement and, and teaching, and then he's coming to this last chapter, and he says, I'm pleading with you, I'm challenging you, those who I really love, that you've got an issue that needs to get resolved. And I think what happens in, in anything, in a marriage, in your family, your broader family, your workplace, um, and particularly, as he speaks here, in the church, when there is disunity, even between two women, here it's two women. I don't think it's, uh, there's anything that we need to find in the Greek about it's just two women. Uh, it's two women. It could be two men. It could be, they, but they were women who were significant and leaders, and they had labored with Paul they were respected people. They, these two women have a conflict, and this conflict is felt with the whole church. And that's, that's usually the way it's going to work. You can't have people not getting along and it not be felt throughout the rest of the church. So what happens? Well, I think first, it kills the joy. You know, when people have conflict, it kills the joy and it kills the peace. It kills the health of the church. And I believe this, that you really cannot see the gospel, the glorious and wonderful message of Christ, advance when you've got internal conflict. Now, centered around these two women, as we said, uh, Yodia and Syntyche, I've called them odious and so touchy, um, if you want to pronounce them that way. And you know what? It'd be easy to pick on. It's always... You kind of say, oh, we can, yeah, point out these women. Yeah, they're really bad. Well, you know, just turn that around and, and point to yourself because you find that all of us have this great capacity to disrupt unity and joy and peace wherever we go. So I, I'm hoping that this text today is not an occasion for you to point to someone else. And that includes me. But this text gives us the opportunity to explore our own lives of how do I bring in the relationships God has called me to joy and peace and unity. That's how we've got to take the word. And, you know, I, I think that until we can take the word of God personally, we're really never going to grow. Because if I just, oh, I know, I know who needs to hear that. <laughs> uh, we could do that all day long. So what kind of problem did these two women have? And you can look real close and you don't find it. <laughs> But I think I'd like to just for a second use a process of elimination. What I, what I think the problem is not doctrinal. In other words, it's not uh, a doctrine of the faith. Well, how do I know that? Because usually when there's a doctrinal problem, what does Paul do? He gets after it. <laughs> I mean, for him, when you talk about uh, a doctrine of redemption, a doctrine of salvation, a doctrine of how we grow, a doctrine of false teachers... The Apostle Paul, in every case that I can see, when there is doctrinal teaching error, which is really the foundation for all of our practical living, 
If there is false teaching, if every single time he's on top of that. Secondly, I don't believe it's an external problem. Uh, it's talking about two women, and typically what happens is when the church is persecuted from the outside and they're being pressured, what happens to the church? It just grows. People pull together. It's like if someone attacks your family or attacks the two of you. What do you do? You, you, you pull together. And you'll find this, that the fastest growing church in the world is in Asia right now. And it's in Muslim countries. Why is that? And I think there, there are a number of reasons for that. But we're, whereas in the U.S., we don't have a lot of persecution. We don't have a lot of, of um, pressure. We've got some. We can say, oh, I talk about the government and everything else. But the persecution where people are losing their lives on a regular basis um, what that does is just strengthen the church and causes it to flourish. So if you look at during the Roman Empire, and particularly right now, Paul's in Rome. He's in Caesar's house, Nero. Um, Paul will build, be released for a short period of time. He'll be back in Rome again, and he's going to be executed. He's going to be beheaded. And people are dying for their faith. So what what that does is we, we get together, we pray, we encourage each other, and so external conflict is going to strengthen the church. This is dividing the church. I don't think it's physical. I don't think that, you know, a typical church prayer meeting, you know, people are all gathered together, <clears throat> and uh, what are our problems? Well, you know, I've got surgery this week. I, you know, uh, God cares about that, and I don't want to minimize those things because God does care about how you're doing physically. But typically what Paul said he had a thorn in the flesh. Uh, we're not sure if that was um, a physical thing, but it could have been his eyesight. And uh, God didn't heal him from it. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't do that. But, but what that did for Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, it says that what he found that the weakness that he had in his flesh, the physical suffering, actually helped him grow in his dependence upon Christ. And so that's not a bad thing. Uh, it's, a, it's a bad thing that helps you grow. So I don't think it's physical. Here's what I believe the problem was. I believe the problem was internal. It's inside the church. It was relational. And it was spiritual. And there is nothing that will destroy a marriage, a family, a business, or a church more quickly than we've got conflict, spiritual, internal, relational conflict within. So this is, this is why I think we hear in his tone, in his voice, urging, pleading those that I love. I mean, he is pretty intense coming into chapter 4. So what's the root problem? And um, well, if you ask Yodia, she'd probably say Syntyche. And Syntyche, you'd ask, what's the root problem? It's Yodia. <laughs> what is the root problem? And I, I don't think it's hard for us to figure what the root problem is. The root problem is your sinful nature. Your stinking, rotten, sinful nature. And I said your because I want you to feel this personally. The easiest thing for me to do is look around and find fault with everyone else and every other condition rather than looking at my own heart. 
And if you go back to just a page in your Bible to chapter 2, and we, we covered this earlier, and he says in verse 3 and 4, really 3 through 5 of Philippians 2, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each one of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now, the word mind or mindset, Paul uses 11 times, 11 times in this one short little letter. The way Christ thought, you think. How did Christ think? He humbled himself. He became obedient unto death. He wasn't self-promoting. He wasn't proud. So here's what I think the point is, is that what is at the root of conflict? What is the root of disunity? What is the root of our lack of joy? It's pride. It's pride. It's self-centeredness. And it doesn't take us long to figure out that every one of us are plagued with that, with that condition. So what is the challenge by Paul? And uh, <clears throat> again, you're not going to like this because it's kind of like rejoice. You know, you're, you're going through a rough day. Someone says, be happy. <clears throat> here's, what, here's what his command is. Stand firm. Stand firm. <clears throat> Say, I don't want to hear the suck it up message. I don't want to hear, you know what, just do right. <clears throat> but this is what he says. The end of verse 1, he says, as, as he's introduced, and he says, this is the command to stand firm in the Lord. So suck it up, yes. Be strong, yes. Stand firm. In fact, it's a, it's a military term. <clears throat> and I think Paul uses that we've talked about athletic. He uses a lot of athletic imagery. He uses a lot of military imagery too. Well, this is a military term. He's in a military city, Rome. He's talking to people who live in a, in a military colony where retired Roman soldiers have gone to Philippi to establish that colony. And he says, be strong. It's like what Paul says in, in Ephesians 6 where he says, uh, uh, be strong, put on the whole armor of God. And Honestly, we're really, when you're tired, you're worn out, and you're discouraged, you don't feel like sucking it up. But I want you to see something about these, what I would say, gospel imperatives. In other words, the commands. And we can see it real clearly. You don't need to turn it on. I think we're going to put this scripture up on the, on the slide, but it's in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And remember I, I was talking about how those passages are what um, Paul, the seasoned veteran, is telling his young son in the faith. And he says in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You then, my son, be strong. Now you say, oh, that's another suck it up one. <laughs> Now, but here's what's really cool about this, I think. When you say be strong in the Greek New Testament, it is a, you kids ready for this? A present passive imperative. A present passive imperative. Now, a present active imperative is be strong. That's what it is. But a present 
passive imperative would be translated better this way, be strengthened. In other words, <clears throat> it's not that I'm going to be strong like, okay, ah. Uh, it's like my grandson, he always does this, grandpa, grandpa, look at me, ah. Uh. <laughs> it's not that. It is you allow yourself to be strengthened from something outside of you. Aha! That's all the difference. You don't have it. You are not able. You feel like quitting. You feel like giving up. You feel like throwing in the towel. You're right. And you're going you're gonna to always get to a point where you can't suck it up anymore. You can't do it anymore. I'm done. I'm done. I quit. I've had enough. It's going on and on and on. And finally, I'm done. And I think you get to that point where, where Paul did as I realized, Lord, it's like that prayer in Romans 8. <laughs> I need you. I need you. Be strengthened. And then he says, in the Lord. In the Lord. Well, we would ask the question, who is the Lord? Well, he's God. I think more specifically, who is the Lord is Jesus Christ. In verse 13 of chapter 4, I can, do, I can do all of this through Christ who gives me strength. I can do all of this by something outside of myself. And I think that the way that this works is that you understand in the Lord is the mind of Christ. We talked about that earlier. You get his mind and his way and understand him. In the very first introduction that we have to Jesus Christ in, in the Gospel of John, and I want to I go there because I think it, understanding this mind is very important. And this is, this is John writing to the world at large about the coming of Christ and what he's like. Okay, how he deals with us. Because Jesus Christ is the one who brings unity. I think we'd all agree with that. He brings unity, and he's outside of us. He'll help us to get to unity. But he says in verse 14, the word, Christ, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. And, and, and listen to this description, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. John testified concerning them. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. He's eternal. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace and place of grace already given. I don't know if you remembered, and Mike touched on this last couple of weeks, uh, but on Easter I talked about this is like an ocean wave. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace is wave after wave, a wave of grace. And then he said, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, why is it important that 
we understand the nature of Christ and the nature of him bringing unity involves grace and truth. Is it possible to have too much grace? You don't need to answer out loud. No. It's impossible to have too much grace. Is it impossible to have too much truth? No. So it's not a balance. It's the coming together of these things. Now, under the law, we find judgment and accusation and conviction. And under grace, we find forgiveness and kindness and mercy. Now, is the Old Testament truth and the New Testament grace? No. In fact, we never find that God got rid of the law. What he did was through Christ fulfilled it. He fulfilled it completely. He met all its demands. And so, in fact, I was talking to Tom Tice about this. He reminded me of, of Psalm 85.10. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. It's a great text, but it's speaking of Christ. So you have God who is holy and just and pure and right and true. You have that. He is that. And he is loving and patient and kind and merciful and tender. Do you believe all that? Now, all of that gets met together in Christ. That's the gospel. So, yes, God loves me. He sent his son to die for me. God is forgiving and he is kind and he is compassionate. But God never ceases to be true and holy and just and right to be merciful. He doesn't do that. God doesn't say, well, you know what, I'm just going to kind of look the way, other way on your sin. No, no. God brought the full wrath and judgment of sin upon Christ or his judgment on, on Christ. So he didn't look the other way. He did judge it in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so <clears throat> this, this to me is important that we understand in dealing with problems, that <clears throat> Jesus Christ is the perfect model. He is the perfect example. So you say, well, why is it that, and we talked about this in the last few weeks, why is it that Jesus, with the woman caught in adultery, doesn't list her sins. He doesn't say, say, you know what, woman? You've done this, this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this. Why doesn't he do that? It's not because he overlooks that or he doesn't know about that. She is already broken. She is already repentant. She is already convicted. She, is, she comes understanding she is unworthy. Same way with the tax collectors, the same way with, with uh, the blind and the lepers and these people. They, they come to him and, and they, they, they come repentant. <clears throat> and so he offers them mercy. Now, what about those people who are sinners who don't know that they're sinning or don't admit that they're sinning and are blind to their own sin? They're called the Pharisees. Do you remember what he said to them? He said to them, you brood of vipers, 
you whitewashed uh, sepulchers. Um, he, he was scathing in his indictment because <clears throat> the difference was because they were self-righteous. They, they thought they were doing fine. They were blind to their own sin. And I, that's why I think that when you compare <clears throat> the person who's involved in horrible sin and is broken and repentant, they're halfway there. The person that does not see that is going to continue uh, in their ways. And I think that's important that we understand this, that God is a, a holy, righteous, pure God, and he hates sin. And he is a loving, tender, compassionate, merciful Savior. And all of that comes together in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and this is the way we function. Now, I think there, there is a danger for us to emphasize one without the other. In other words, if I, if I were to say... Um, you know, God's holy and righteous and judge of all things, and I, and I don't realize his mercy, I get into what I call the, the, the ditch. You know, the straight and narrow is grace and truth. Right down the middle, the, those two parallel lines, grace and truth, they run together. But there's a ditch called legalism, where all you're pointing out is the law. All you're pointing out is, is God's holiness. And there's also a ditch where all you talk about is grace and you never deal with truth. And we have to deal with truth. And to realize this, that the answer, the source, is Jesus Christ. That's why when he gets into verse 13 of chapter 4 in Philippians, he's saying, I can do all of this through Christ who strengthens me. So here's, here's the final challenge that Paul makes. The call is to unity. He's saying to the women, he's saying, you need to get along. He's saying to the church, you need to help them get along. So it's not only saying to them, and, and I think it's interesting, he names them. Uh, you know, can you imagine the letter comes in and, uh, hey, we got a letter from Paul, we got a letter from Rome, we got a letter. Everybody kind of gathers around and they're kind of reading along and uh, all of a sudden they get a little nervous. All of a sudden he, he named me. <laughs> well, it's probably pretty tough. But it's, it's, and I believe, born out of love, what he says. He names them, Yodia and Syntyche. I'm naming these ladies. He also mentions the name Clement. And, I, and what's interesting here is, in, uh, if you look at verse 3, it says, Yes, and I asked my true companion. And you say, well, who is that? And I believe that that is a person. Not, it's, uh, and there are commentators that will disagree but if you translate it into the Greek, it's Sigis, Sisigus, Sisigus. I practiced that before, we didn't get it right. Sisigus. And you know, I say, why, why do you think that's a name? Because all the other people are named. Yodius, Syntyche, Clement. And a lot of times, you know, every name has a meaning. Like Yodia means prosperous journey. Syntyche means uh, pleasant acquaintance. And Sisigus means yoke fellow. In other words, and I like the, the picture of the, you're in a yoke, there's unity. You've got to be pulling together. But he's talking about my true companion, my true yoke fellow. But what he's saying here uh, is you ladies need to resolve your differences and you leaders in the church and the church family need to help them. You, you have the responsibility to help them. 
you say, well, you know what, I'd just really rather not get involved. And that's typically the way we feel. If it's not, if it's not directly dealing with you, probably the easiest thing in conflict or disunity is walk away. Just walk away. Or second thing we do is just blow up, say things and that are not helpful to make it worse. But here's what Paul is saying. Okay, we have a problem here. You ladies need to come together. The rest of you need to help, help them. Let's work together for resolution. You say, well, why? And I say, number one, if you really love someone, you're going to go to them and talk to them about it. You say, well, real love doesn't do that. Real love always does that. Now, it does it in the right way. It does it in the right spirit. It does it in the right time. And that's not easy to wrestle through. You don't just go blab off and say what you think. But if you see someone you really love who is in error, the loving thing to do is to pray about it and, and ask God, how can I help them be reconciled and this re relationship be restored? And I, I think that when we neglect that, what happens is we never have unity. And the person never gets to be back walking the way that they walked. It, it affects the entire com community. So it affects the church, it affects your family, it affects your relationships. And I believe this, it affects the advance of the gospel. When, when the church is in internal conflict, the gospel is not being advanced. That's why we're here. That's why we exist. And ultimately, God is not pleased. You know what's something beautiful about the Trinity? The unity of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's something beautiful about Pentecost when the church is formed. The beauty of the unity by the Spirit of God. There's something beautiful about when a man and a woman are married and they come into unity. There's something beautiful about when your children have that type of relationship. And I, and I believe this that the church should be constantly striving for unity. Now, you say, but I can't control what's happened in my home or at work or at church or with... I can't control what's happened to me. And you never can. But you can control how you respond. So what is our response? <clears throat> and I would say this, that in... And to me, this is one of those messages that's applicable for this week. It's applicable for every week in your life because I don't think we ever go through any week where we don't struggle with unity. What is my response? I would say this, be full of grace and full of truth. Be full of grace and be full of truth. Now, that's the way Jesus lived. That's the way he walked. That's the way he engaged people. And so in all of my relationships with people, whether it's a church context, family context, job context, other ministry context, Lord, I pray that my life would be defined by this, that I am constantly full of grace. In other words, your mercy, kindness, joy, and peace. And I'm also defined by being honest and having integrity and doing the right thing and being holy before you because of Christ. And if I can be that kind of person, then I can be part of the solution to help someone else out. 
So it's not when you see a problem, just point your finger. I think sometimes when just the immediate reaction is, I'm going to point my finger and tell them what I think. And the other response is not to sweep it under the rug or to walk away. I think my, I've always felt first thing I do is pray because I know that's always a safe thing to do. <laughs> Lord, what do I do? I've got a brother, a sister. There's a strain in relationship. And I know this right now. There's no joy and there's no peace and there's conflict and it's not getting resolved. Lord, help me be a part of what you're doing in people's lives. You know, I'd read a, a quote by John Piper some time ago. I'll just close with this. In every crisis, in every conflict, <clears throat> God's at work. Right now, when he looks at our church, God's not up there wringing his hands. He's not up there just going, oh, what am I going to do? What are we, we going to do? God's not wringing his hands. He's a sovereign God. And God is working in this church. He is working in your life. I mean, I want you to take this personally. You need this. I need this. He's working in us. And he's working in people in this community. You could make a list of all the things that God might be doing. And then, as Piper says, He's doing 10,000 other things you don't see. And we need to trust him for that. And we need to obey him through that process. So my prayer is this, that God will bless Valley Community Church, bless you as an individual, bless your family, and bless our future with joy and peace and unity and the glory of God. May we walk in grace. May we walk in truth pleasing to the Lord. Let's bow together as we pray. Father, we thank you for your word, your gospel. And we thank you that every righteous demand has been met in Jesus Christ, who has made it possible for us to come to you and to pray and to worship you. And we pray that today that whatever burdens we carry, whatever friction might be in, in a relationship, work or family, marriage or church, that we might look to you in prayer, asking you to help us get your mind to be full of grace and full of truth, to respond to those we love and long for as Paul did for these that he loved. And what we believe, Lord, is that this matter was reconciled. And we thank you for that. May you continue to be the God who reconciles. As our heads are bowed and her eyes are closed, and we'll close here in just a moment with a song. But I'd like to just give you a moment to ask, you take some time to ask the Lord to help you. You may have to pray with groans right now because you don't have the words, but I, I want you to ask the Lord to help you, to help you, to get his mind, grace and truth, to be the kind of person that pleases him, the kind of person that in all the relationships that you're a part of right now, that you are the person that is pressing toward unity, not division, but unity.
that God will continue to use you in that way.